Welcome to Through the Line, the Agency Squared podcast with me, Andy Bargery. In this episode, I'm joined by Tom Lewis, who has spent a good chunk of his career buying and selling agencies. And Tom joins me to explore what it is we need to do as agency owners to get ready for a trade sale, whether that's to a large corporate or whether it's to private equity. And we look at things like shoulder alignment, we look at mindset, we look at the kind of metrics you might use, uh, we talk about business plan, the benchmarks are important, and generally all of those things are important when you're getting ready for sale. If that's on your roadmap and you're looking for a sale or an exit at some point in the next 3, 5, 10 years, you're definitely going to get some value from listening to Tom's advice. I hope that you enjoy the show. Tom, good morning. Good morning, Andy. Welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? Very well, thank you. Very good. Good, good, good. I'm really pleased you've decided to come on the show because I've looked at the idea of selling an agency before and I talked through the process with somebody that has sold their own agency. But you come at this from a different lens, don't you? Uh, in that you, you've been involved in buying agencies, quite a lot of them over the years. Bought and sold, done, done all of them, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So let me briefly introduce you. And I'm obviously going to miss some things out because your career is long and impressive. Uh, so I'll just try and pick out the bits that I think. It's a polite way of saying I've got a lot of grey hairs. Yeah. Um, yeah. OK, definitely. But uh, so where do I start? I think you started out at Coca-Cola um, or is it KPMG? One of the two. I forget which I st- right. started in accountancy with, yeah. with a big four, then with Coke and, and then then sort of spent most of my career in marketing services either sort of corporate roles or the last 10 years owner managed businesses so so marketing services is where i come from basically yes perfect and if we pick out a couple of names so from the corporates ogilvy and mather you were the cfo for eastern europe there and then you went to work for huntsworth didn't you as a european cfo and MA director and that's i think where you kind of cut your teeth in the buying and selling of agencies well lots of MA there so i was, I was in the plc head office um we were a buy and build pr network um and at one point we were doing one acquisition a month and then we moved on to doing slightly they they were essentially a lot of them were distressed purchases buying up struggling businesses on the cheap yeah uh, and then we moved on more to strategic infill so they took a little bit longer to land they were bigger businesses but they they were higher quality acquisitions so strategic infill you're talking about plugging gaps in their services yeah. roster so yeah. in one case we've got one part of europe covered by one network one part of europe covered by another we were merging the two and our gap was eastern europe so so we bought a, a 15 market eastern european pr network that just slotted in really nicely Excellent. Excellent. I've been on the kind of agency team side of those sorts of movements. I used to work for a couple of Omnicom agencies and they were brought together to strengthen that offering and I think find those synergies across the Western Europe, perhaps. But that's great. I mean, that kind of experience is 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 phenomenal. And for the people that typically listen to this show, they tend to be running uh, independent agencies. And a lot of them have this view this idea that they're going to grow their agency for 10 15 years whatever that looks like and then they're going to sell they're going to look for that exit and find the trade sale and whether they realize that vision or not a lot of them have that goal in mind and that at some point they're going to want to go and sit on a beach drinking pina coladas or that's probably the wrong drink these days isn't it it's a bit out of date pina coladas um what's the current 
perfect uh, cocktail of choice, right. Negronis, maybe. Gin, gin and tonic or Negronis, yeah. Basically. Yeah, there you go. G and who, who, who wouldn't want to do that after after 15 years of, of running an agency? <laughs> Quite. You Absolutely. It's not, a, it's not a, 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 a track for the faint-hearted, is it? But I'd love to get your take today on what does it take to get ready for sale mm. also looking at the other way around perhaps what does it take to get ready to buy if you wanted to you know yeah. buy your way to growth rather than sell but i think probably if we focus on the the former rather than the latter we'll get them sure. yeah i mean it, it's selling an agency is is I think um, one of the things they say about a golden age is you never realize it's part you know it's it, you've been through it until it's passed and I, I think the golden age of M&A probably has passed now. It, it's not the same sort of market as it was 10 or 15 years ago, where, as you said, Omnicom, WPP were just snapping up. They were just going for volume. They, they'd buy you know, lots of very similar looking agencies. And, and you know, when I spent my time in um, on the buy side, the market was getting much more selective in terms of what it bought and the multiples it would pay. Um, and essentially, you have to have something now that I think really interesting to differentiate yourself because the scale has been acquired. Mm-hmm. So, what you know, what are you bringing to the likes of, be it WPP or Omnicom or or whoever, one of the smaller um, industry aggregators? What are you bringing uh, that they don't have and that they can't get uh, elsewhere or they can't build themselves? So, so uh, uh, some something distinctive and innovative is is absolutely key. Uh, in terms of your offering to sell, um, and I suppose that that sort of brings you into a, 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 a decision you need to make. Um, if you're deciding to sell, you've you've got to go down a particular route, and you've got to always consider what the buyer is going to see, what value they're going to see in your business. Whereas if if you're just running it as as or not just running it, but if you're running it as your own business for your income. You, you, you'll do things that maximize your income for the next one or two years rather than looking at actually how do I how do I sell this and 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 to you know trade buyer or private equity and and then be able to take right. it to the next stage so they're, they're very different routes and you probably need to you know the sooner you start thinking about that where that one where that takes you I think the better I agree and and, and I had this exercise when I was I- something I explained to you I ran my own Marcom shop for a little while and and my view was to to get that ready for a sale and when i looked at what i thought i'd need to do to get there over the next five years i really didn't have the appetite for that because i realized that there was so much i needed to do um, strategy wise positioning wise to get to a point where i had something that was a saleable asset rather than a collection of people that were loosely affiliated to my company which in reality is what most agencies are aren't they? they don't have a lot of ip in the business and that that's the challenge i think with a sale is um the IP is in generally in the talent, and and the way you keep the talent, you know, the, the sort of what we get, the marzipan layer, the, the next level down is is the quality of, of the management, and so really all you're really buying is the CEO's ability to win good clients and to retain good people in the business, and, and that is not something that can be codified or replicated or scaled up. It, scaling up human capital businesses is is really hard um, organically. So, you know, however great you are as a CEO, um, it's a long slog to win new good clients at higher margins than your average margin and to attract more talented people than your average talent level Mm. to business. That's just a really tough 
um, thing to do. It's, it's hard enough to do it as an owner manager, but as a, as a private equity investor or a trade investor, um, trying to incentivize people to, to get there is, is tough. So mm. I, I think that that's why there's a, a degree of caution around, you know, what per, buying agencies and looking for something in there um, that is more scalable uh, and, and where there is some sort of IP that's protectable and isn't linked just to the to the people in the business. Yes, who often can leave at a, a very short notice. Yeah. <laughs> so I think you've talked about this idea of, you know, that steady state business versus preparing to sell okay. business and kind of leading into that now, aren't we? So what what do you mean by that? Is it, what's What do you mean by a steady state business? Well, steady state is really where you're not planning to sell imminently uh, and, and as, as you sort of hinted at that could be within the next five years so you know as, as an owner manager you're making decent margins your you know your client base is good your um uh, you've got good talent it's all working but there's nothing really to scale up and and so if you if you try to sell that agency to somebody on a multiple of, of profit why would they buy it? What what are they getting? They're, they're going to take the risk of paying you, you know, in my day, it was eight times profit up front. So, you know, what's that business going to do in the next eight years under new ownership that it couldn't do under the existing ownership? And, and that's the conundrum, I think, as an owner manager, you need to solve. What am I offering? Uh, when I get that extra funding in, how can I scale up um, more quickly? So that, that's a kind of a steady state business. And, and that, that's a great business to have if, if, if you're an owner manager. I think you you know you, you may struggle to sell that um, at, at a really great price if if that's all you're bringing to the table. Is that more of I suppose the, the the term a lifestyle business? You want to be running that business for you, and you're focused on that cash generation. Cash generation definitely. Lifestyle business is is a slightly loaded term because it, it almost suggests that you're doing it as a hobby and you're not taking a lot of money out of it. And it's it's not necessarily that that problem. You maybe have a very profitable business. It's just in a steady state. It's not growing. And if if you're earning you know chunky amounts of money and as you say throwing off large amounts of cash, um, that that's a great business. And and um, you know maybe maybe you're not even under any pressure to sell, but it's it's just not attractive to a buyer in, mm. in that format. And if you want to make it attractive, then what you need to be doing is reinvesting in the business. Mm. So developing some kind of IP um, that is scalable that you could then take, for example, to other markets. You, could, you, could you go where your clients are to other countries, other dots on the map? Could you bolt on other services around what this IP is? And, but you just need the capital to do it. And if, if, if the only thing that's stopping you from growing, you know, ideally exponentially, but certainly sort of at a, at a high sort of double digit percentage rate is just the capital to invest in your business, then, then that's when you get interested and say, well, I can, I can buy it now at this level. And, and with the investment I make, we can accelerate the growth. Mm. So how do you tell that story? What, what, what are the things that investors look for then? They're looking for obviously a piece, a bit of IP that they can see is scalable like that with with some investment. I think investors are looking for, they're going to pay you a large chunk of money up front. And, and what they want to do is make a, a multiple of that investment. So not just a margin on it, but a multiple. Mm. There has to be a business case that, that says this business can grow, as I say, high double digit um 
percentage top line growth um, in the next couple of years. So private equity will typically uh, hold for three to five years and then sell again. And, and one of the, the things I, I like about private equity is they're very focused on the exit. They only ever buy businesses with a view to selling them on afterwards. So I suppose it's, it's the same that then um, has an impact on how you as a business owner need to think. You need to be thinking when I sell this business uh, to a new owner, they're only going to hold it for three to five years. They want accelerated growth, the sort of thing that as an owner manager you might do in 10 years, you're going to need to be have a plan to do that in, say, three to five. And there has to be a lot of added value in that in that period. So there'll be an investment phase where you maybe open new offices or you develop new products and services. Um, and then you need to sort of have proof that, that those will generate higher income and higher margins. I'm just trying to think what that proof would be because a lot of that is well, forecast. Uh, yeah, it, it starts off with a, a, a you know um, a business plan. So you'll need somebody who's good with numbers putting together a plan that says, you know, this is, and then and then as you go through the PE cycle, you know, you'll need to demonstrate the growth that is that is coming through. Mm. So there'll always be a lot of scrutiny on your numbers. Is is revenue growing? profit doesn't necessarily need to grow in line with revenue because there's an investment phase at the beginning and then there's the sort of uh, as you maybe as the investment sort of uh, tapers down you should see the margins shoot up but there will be a lot of scrutiny in the selling process as to well, what's your forecast what's 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 the investment case mm. why should i invest in this business how, how can you grow and then once you've sold the scrutiny, the scrutiny will only continue, um, you know, to increase. Are, are you doing all the things you said you would do? So it's yes. Um, and I think you, you made a good point, Andy. I mean, you, you've got to look at that and say that that's what I want to do. You know, I, I'm going to I need to spend however many years preparing my business for that. And then I need to go on the journey as well. And it, it's tough. It definitely yes. is tough. Yeah, I can't imagine it's an easy process. And that's why I chose a different path, because I looked at it and thought, have I got the appetite for such a big piece of work? Have I got the team and to be fair, the resources to do it? And at the time, I didn't feel as though I did. So that's why I chose a different route. So what are the kind of what are those we've talked about forecasts there and, and forecasting can obviously be a bit of a um, a dark art to some extent. It, I've never really seen an accurate forecast and, and a lot of it is kind of finger in the air stuff. So how, how far in advance do most forecasts stand up to any sort of scrutiny? I think that a lot of that, the thing I learned very early on in, in marketing services businesses is um, revenue and cash visibility. That if you're going to grow, you're going to invest. If you're investing, you need cash to support that investment. So therefore, your forecast has to have good revenue and cash visibility. So one of the things that private equity looks for, one of the most important things is recurring revenues. Mm. So if, if you're, for example, a completely project based business uh, and you can and I've worked at businesses where we could only forecast our revenue with any certainty for you know, eight to 12 weeks. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. That's commonplace, I think. But if that's, you know, that that's a much harder sell. And that's not to say that you can't get investment. Um, but if, if you don't have some kind of unique IP uh, and you don't have something that looks like recurring revenues and you're only forecasting eight to 12 weeks ahead, 
and private equity is going to hand over a chunk of money to you as the owner and then look to to sort of scale up the business which will absorb cash that that's going to be a tough sell i think so so starting to get those recurring the, the revenue visibility long term contracts or or just a history of retaining clients it it can be a sort of de facto um uh, a de facto thing that you just if you've got good client retention uh, and you retain them at the same sorts of levels uh, and you've got a diversified client portfolio so that even if if you lose one um it's not going to throw the business um uh, off too much then that you're starting to look like a business that can generate cash and that cash can be used for investment and then you've got to have a credible investment plan of of how you will grow um and and what what again what are those unique things what what are the things that the market can't easily replicate so it can be ip it can sometimes just be in the nature of your client relationships or the the things that the combination of things that you offer mm. um so if you offer a particular service um linked to another one and no one else quite offers that combination um and and couldn't easily overnight develop that combination that that can be something that that's akin to ip it's something unique uh, that no one else no one else offers that's the challenge of marketing services because there is this is such a competitive landscape isn't it there is somebody doing everything i think but perhaps pulling two or three things together in a unique arrangement is is quite interesting I've seen a few businesses do that, and and that that has been there. You know, private equity calls it the secret sauce. What what is the thing that you do that no one else does? Yeah. Okay. Um, the, or the other bit is, you know, private equity will also look at um, a sort of a, a, an industry consolidation play. So if if you look at a fragmented industry and you say, well, I can I can gain scale by bashing together a bunch of businesses that are are very fragmented that there can be something interesting in in that play for them Mm, okay that's interesting so i i think that that the secret source is is something to bear in mind for you if you're running an agency because so many agencies set up uh, almost accidentally i suppose and they grow to that sort of 15 20 person a couple of million revenue size without really any business plan or without any real sense of of creating anything uh, new any secret source they're just doing a really good job at delivering pr services or uh, media planning or or creative services whatever it looks like and I, and i think trying to define what that secret source is is the challenge for lots and that's why we see so many undifferentiated agencies in the marketplace there's no real strategic positioning because there there was no real plan to get there in the first place yeah and and i think you have to be brutally honest about to the extent to which you really are differentiated i mean every agency says we're different because and, and you you know you strip strip it away and say well you know do, are you really the only agency and you know that, that does that and or is it just you're doing the same as everyone else so yeah a bit of bit of brutal honesty about the extent to which you're differentiated yeah absolutely i mean if, if you're using the words award-winning full service agency in your positioning you're not yeah. differentiated and, and um you know responsiveness and enthusiastic and all of those things yeah uh, we're a partner for our clients on the journey of yeah, yeah, yeah all, that, all sort of that um that unfortunately that is that is not an investable secret source business case much much as it's important for the for the day job yeah there's no secret source there talk to me about what does good look like what are those kind of indicators that um are there any kind of metrics that private equity or uh, large agency networks look for when they're trying to make an acquisition yeah, I mean, I think private equity will often look at um, them all over the finances. So you need to have really good financial information. 
Um, and the starting point will be, you know, good information about your revenues and your profits. Um, and, and that really is, that's just table stakes. Mm. Um, what does it, what, what do good profit margins look like? And are we talking gross or net profit or does it not matter? Um, the thing with net profit, and especially in a managed business, um, that can be, that's quite easy to manipulate because it depends, for example, as an owner, what you're doing on your salary, whether you're, t- if you're not taking out a salary, and you're taking it as dividends for tax purposes, um, then you you can unduly flatter your net profit margin. So you need to be taking out, you know, so you, you, an element of normalization. And again, you've got to be brutally honest here. What what sort of salary would somebody at your level be taking? And if you're not putting that through the accounts because you're taking it as dividends, then um, you'll need to normalize the profits. Yeah. Conversely, if you're putting through, you know, certain lifestyle expenses through your business because you can. Uh, and because that's tax efficient, once you've sold the business, you can just take those out. So again, normalizing for things that aren't aren't really business expenses or, or aren't um, uh, you know the costs of actually the, the business that you do that can be taken out. So, so there's a degree of normalizing the profits as well. And, and private equity will work with you to to do that. But if you've if you've already got a set of accounts that looks like that, that you can just sort of you know, hand over and say, here's our monthly management accounts and, and, and you know, management are all taking full salaries and there's no there's no um, costs in here that are, that, are, that are sort of profit management costs. Mm. Um, it just makes it a little bit easier. So it's a bit more honest and transparent as well. Yeah. And it's, as I say, private equity, very numbers based, but, but also very strategic. So what, what they will have done is, is looked at the market uh, and in the market that you are operating in, say, well, where, what you know, what is what does the research say? Where is this market going? Uh, and and their, their their thought will be, well, if if this is a growing sector, and you're playing in it and you're doing well, then you've got a good business in in a good sector, you know, on balance of probabilities that, and, and we have a strategy for how we're going to grow faster than the market's growing, then. Then that's a, that's that's an investment case. So so the, the forward-looking bit will be to look at um, w- what is the business plan, what's the strategy um, for growth, and and w- what difference can can an investor make to grow it more quickly. That that will be there for what you know. What are you doing at a good rate that that we can you know make happen three or four times faster, um, and. The, the bit that you you touched on there, Andy, I mean, the difference between gross profit and, and net profit is is an interesting one because gross profit is essentially your pricing um, uh, ability, and in in a I suppose in a, in a knowledge capital um, knowledge work business, that's probably it is what I used to call um, it, it's revenue minus staff direct staff costs. We used to call it contribution. Um, and if you're looking at contribution, that that's essentially how much profit you're making on the people who are doing doing work for clients. That to me, if I only had one number um, other than you know things like cash, that that that's a really key one because it's your pricing and yes. you charge high prices to clients is a sign that you've got a really good business. What what else you do lower down is is sort of some that might be investment or, or other things. But if if you if you're starting with high gross margins as in as i say revenue minus minus direct staff cost that that's a sign of a really strong business 
So that so that's interesting. What would be a good benchmark to aim for? Because I know over the years, having worked for various different agencies, they have a, a different figure in mind. And typically it's, uh, you know, each fee earner needs to be worth X amount to the business. You know, maybe it's 10,000 a month fees or something yeah. along those lines. What's a good benchmark? What do people look for these days? Um, di- different ways of measuring it and, and different. Um, so I've worked in, in almost every marketing services um, uh, sector. And, and so the, the more consultative ones use things like staff utilization. So lawyers use staff utilization. PR does. So that's of, of the number of hours you've got in a, a week or a month that you could be billing to clients. How many are you billing? Mm. Um when I was in advertising where it's it's less about individuals and it's it's you know the bigger projects more of a team um approach contribution we looked at was um uh, as I say direct revenue you know turnover minus pass-throughs gives you your revenue number and then we 37 and a half percent is the amount that you should spend on on staff costs was was the way I worked it out which was about a 50% staff cost ratio and about 75% of your staff being direct versus 25% being in the back office. So you, you crunch the percentages, you get to about 37.5% um, uh, costs um, uh, on, on, your, uh, on your client revenues. Oh, that's interesting. We tend to look at that for a couple of companies that I work with, creative services, but not in the marketing sphere. And we have that kind of third, a third, a third, a third is the profit. oh yeah yeah third is the uh, the cost of the business. A third goes to the run of the employees. Basically, it tends to work out quite evenly across the years on that split, which is not a million miles away from what you're saying there. By the yeah. sounds of things, yeah. Um, th- th- there's yeah uh, plenty of metrics. Um, in a way, I, I mean, you sort of the key thing here is not to get hung up on um, hard measurable lagging indicators because any, any fool can can measure indicators a business however they like the, the the skill of management is is uh is the difference between performance and results so so management is is doing all the right things that gives you good results so that when your financial controller or finance director or whoever you've got brings you a set of numbers you know they're good numbers. All, all they're really doing is is sort of looking in the rearview mirror and you know confirming back to you how how you've performed, but yes. or, you know what what results you've achieved. You, you can't you can't drive by looking in the rearview mirror. You you have to have certain. <laughs> it reasons. helps to look back occasionally, though. It, it, it does. <laughs> looking back is important because if you have a hypothesis that says, well, if we if we go after this bit of business, we we think we'll make this much money. You have to look back and say, did, did we make as much money as we thought? And and, and if not, why not? And, and but but the re, you know being strategic is then doing that measurement and comparison, and altering your future behaviour in the light of of what you've learned from um, from from analysing you know your past behaviour. So behaving differently that that's the really important bit. So it's it's all about the sort of forward looking um, indicators and and. Um, Gross margin is is sort of um, it, it's kind of forward looking. It tells you something about your pricing strength. The, the other one that I, I, I find really useful um, and I ask uh, businesses a lot about is, you know, what's your win rate without a pitch? Because if you're winning business without having to go through a pitch, if you're just being appointed, first of all, that's that's a, a very a much cheaper way of acquiring new business. But it also means you've got huge um, power in in the selling process 
and therefore that's a sign of a really good business that, that you, you can you can go in and you can win business um without needing to to go through a pitch process so that that's probably one of the best sort of forward-looking measures of what what have you got in your pipeline and and you know how much of that is is going to come in without a pitch yeah, it's a real indicator of the agency's brand strength, isn't it? If they're yeah. being appointed just because of who they are and the reputation they've got, that's a really strong indicator of a quality brand and a quality agency team. Exactly, and, and good, good, um, yeah, good agency staff will be able to go into the client and and do that consultative sell thing of identifying a problem that the client possibly didn't even know they had, um, and being able to propose a solution. And, and once you've done that you're almost able to charge whatever price you like because you're proactively, consultatively going to the client and, and making their lives better for them. Those are great agencies or, or, or um, business partners to have have working for you. And, and I, when I as an FD, I've had, I've had suppliers do that and I've always been very loyal to them. I've never questioned their bills because they're just adding so much value. Yes, yeah, absolutely. That's such a key point to think about. Uh, how much are you winning without having to go through a pitch process? Really interesting. And I bet there are very few agencies that do that analysis to understand how much are they being appointed for directly as a a result of the strength of their reputation and their brand. Just looking at the clock, I'm aware we're getting a bit close to that half an hour mark. (laughs) But there's a couple of things I wanted to just touch on. First one is, there's a word you've used a few times, which is business plan. And I think business plan is is one of those things that most agencies either don't have at all or ha- don't have a very detailed one. And people are often scared by the prospect of an enormous document that outlines the, their business plan. And, and I think in reality, not like that, is it? So I'd love to get your take on business plan. And then then finally, I suppose, you know, what's the, what's the credible agency size where you start to become an investable proposition? Because I think when agencies are, you know, let's say they're sub a million or sub half a million in revenues, that's quite a risky bet for a, for an, for an investor, isn't it? So at what point, at what size do investors start to get excited by yeah. uh, an agency? I think, I mean, there are different investors of different sizes, um, but obviously there's this a certain fixed cost to doing a deal. So the smaller um, the agency, you know, the fixed costs of doing that deal are going to be proportionally a lot higher. So, uh, and even if you, you know, do three or five times your your investment on a on a you know a one million deal, you're not making that much money. So it's there is there is a scale factor uh, there. You need to be of a certain size, um, and also, I, I guess you know, a, a business of a certain size, you need to be a certain size to support. Um, the kind of senior management that you're going to need for growth. If you're a smaller business, you, you know you'll probably have, you know, maybe what a sm- one or a small number of people pretty much doing everything. So again, you're over dependent on a, on, on a, mm. uh, a small management team. So so scale diversifies the risk, um, and it makes growth easier. So if you're a you know if you are a small very small business. Um, uh, you know, as you say, like a, a million. If you're just doing a million, uh, a million pounds turnover, um, you either need to grow quickly, or you know, be part of that industry consolidation play. So, if you know four or five other complementary businesses in in your circle uh, that are of a similar size, th- there may be a deal to be done there where you all come together in a sort of complementary way, uh, and and then you 
you know, there's a deal to be done um, with an investor, just one transaction, but with all, you know, gaining gaining scale overnight mm, okay. and, and possibly go on go on the journey beyond that and say, well, you know, here's, here's five or six acquisitions overnight. And by the way, we, we also know all of these other ones who would be interested in coming on the journey at some point as well. And we, you know, we, we can, um, we can kick off those conversations. So that, that's a, that's a play for um, businesses that are much smaller in size. If, if selling is, is what they want to do mm. um, so, in terms of business, what, what does a business plan look like? I mean, it's really, you know, you start off with an idea in your head of how am I going to grow this business? What what is what is my secret sauce? How how great is my ambition? Um, where is the growth going to come from? So it, it needs to be very outward looking. What are the services I can sell and, and what are the clients I can sell them to and, and where can I sell them? So that there might be geographic expansion. Okay. Um, and and then it's it's really just a case of refining that into you know, what, what would I need to do to get there? And eventually that, you know, the, the final output of that is a, a set of a set of numbers and ultimately a cash flow forecast that says, well, this is the money coming in. This is the money that I'm going to need to spend. There's two elements to spend, really. There's there's running costs and there's investments. So what are my running costs? And if, if you've got, going back to this earlier point, if, if you've got good growth margins, high prices, you're generating a lot of surplus cash that you can then use for investment. So if, if your business plan involved either developing new products or opening new offices, you know, there will or, or even hiring, you know, hiring new new people to you know for sales, there's gonna be a sort of runoff time. You know, you've got you've got all the setup costs, you've got the sort of bedding in time, and, and those little investments, those those organic investments you make could take, you know, three to twelve months to start paying back. So you've got to fund them for that period. And therefore, that's that's when you need to have lean running costs um, and a high gross margin to generate that cash to um, uh, to fund those investments. I'm going to be picking this conversation apart for a long time to make sure I've got all the learnings out of this, Tom. <laughs> I think part of the challenge with talking to marketeers is we're not always the most gifted at numbers. And of course, that's the crucial part of a of an exit, a trade sale, isn't it? Really getting to grips with and understanding the numbers. Uh, and, and I think pulling that together into a credible business plan with those details, the elements you've just talked about. I think can be a challenge. And I, I talk to a lot of small agency owners and I encourage them to put their thoughts down into a simple two or three page business plan to start off with and get it all into one place and use that as a way to bring their team around them on the journey. And it is is often a good starting point. But I think when you get to that level of exit, you need a bit more depth in the plan. Yeah, I, I, absolutely. I mean, two or three pages for, for a management team is is probably you know that that will do in terms of are we all agreed? Are we all aligned? And yes. having having worked with a number of, of owner managed businesses, getting that shareholder alignment around where is this business going? What do we want from it? How are we going to do it? And when are we going to do it? That's that's absolutely key. If you're not aligned on that, um, you won't get investment. Um, you absolutely, yeah, and it may be, and I, I've seen it happen. You know, not everybody wants wants to go on the journey. So part of that, um, you know, I've seen it happen that one person says, you know, at the point of investment, I, I will leave, and someone else who's who's you know more ambitious and more up for it and, and just possibly a bit more young, younger and energetic, 
I'll take over and I'll lead this this new business forward. So having absolute agreement between the shareholders is is key. And and for, for an internal working document, maybe two or three pages is is plenty. But if someone's going to give you a big chunk of money and and that become their business, they're going to want more detail than that. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think that shareholder agreement and alignment is is a difficult piece to sort out. I'm going through the process of selling a, a company at the moment and having that a, a agreement between the different shareholders as to what the strategy is 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 not a short conversation. No, and it's it's because everybody, as you say, if, if you've sort of slightly fallen into owning your own business, um, and everybody's fallen into it for slightly different reasons, and it's working for people for different reasons. Mm. Um, a lot of my job as as CFO in in these businesses has been just the shuffle diplomacy between the, the different shareholders and getting them aligned on, you know, here, here are the numbers, here's the strategy, does this work? And, you know, it is almost a little bit like relationship counselling. Um, you've got three shareholders all pulling in slightly different directions, yeah. a bit of overlap, and, and 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 your, you know, your CFO is is, is sometimes the person who, who sort of just sort of, because then they're, they're a, um, an observer rather than a participant, they can be a little bit more dispassionate about... Um, about some of the conversations, but ultimately, um, you know, it, it's it, the shareholders have to have have alignment. And um, you know, the, the key thing I think is, as I said earlier, private equity will buy with a view to selling, so they're absolutely aligned before they even think about buying. Mm. But you know, if I buy this, you know, it, this is an investment. It's I'm not going into marketing services for love of marketing services. I'm going into to make a multiple of, of the amount yeah. that I spend on a business. And that thought, that mindset is really important that you you have to be a business owner and not just a practitioner. You know, when you talk to the staff, you'll you'll talk about the practice of 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 the services you're you're um, you're providing to your clients. But when you sit down and do your business plan with your business partners with a view to selling, it's a business owner mindset, and 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 you know, there can't be any sentimentality about it. it it's got to be how are we maximizing the value of this business? Yeah, I, I, that's a really great uh, place to end up, I think, is that mindset of being a business owner rather than a practitioner. Um, certainly those that start out as independents, you know, running their own shop, they're definitely practitioners. They're really great at what they do, but they have to transition to being that business owner and remove themselves from the day-to-day operations of the business and servicing clients. Otherwise, they're still a practitioner and not a business owner. And I think that's probably one of the a key message to take away from this. I think is you know you've got to have that mindset, right? Yeah. I mean, ultimately, you're, you're then just a freelancer with a bunch of support staff, not really a business owner. Yeah. If, if you're still you know in the weeds doing the job, and, and great as it is to to be able to do that, um, that ability to step back and, and have a business owner's mindset, I think, is key. And I, the investors are going to want a lot of your time. You know, they're going to, in, in the selling process or in their buying process, they're going to want to talk to you a lot about um, your numbers, your business plan, your strategy, you know, questions, um, deep interrogation of, of the numbers. And then as you go on the journey, they will want your time to talk about the business plan and the strategy. So it, you, you've got to be able to have the, have the time to have those conversations. And if you're deep in the weeds of client service, you're, <laughs> there's a real conflict there because yeah. your clients are going to be shouting and the squeaky uh, wheel always gets the wheel, don't they? So exactly. that's what I think about. Tom, loads and loads and loads of stuff in there that I'm going to have to listen to multiple times. So I really appreciate the time you've taken to go. It's been great to chat. 
if people want to find out more or want to reach out and get in touch and say, Tom, help me sell my agency or whatever, um, or help me buy some agencies, how, how should they get in touch with you? What's the best place to reach you? Um, best place to get hold of me probably is through LinkedIn. So I'm Tom Lewis uh, and I live in Cambridge. So um, you can find me on LinkedIn. Perfect. Tom, thanks so much. All right. Cheers, Andy.